Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast, episode number 203. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you. Brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got a trio of talented guests for you this week on the podcast. In the second half, we talk with singer and guitarist Don Daneman, a founding member of the 60s pop group The Circle. You remember Red Rubber Ball, Turn Down Day? Yeah. Don talks about that. They were the opening act for The Beatles on their final U.S. concert tour, including the last show at Candlestick Park. They got their name from John Lennon, as a matter of fact. But Don talks with us mostly about the chance to do some new music with his former partner in the circle, Tommy Dawes, who passed away several years ago. But there's a great story about how he found some Tommy Dawes vocals and turned it into a brand new song. All that ahead here on the podcast. But up first, a pair of talented brothers, twins, as a matter of fact, the Lane twins, Gary and Larry, who are uh, models, actors, writers, producers, directors, have done a documentary previously called From Hollywood to Dollywood that involved their, uh, their efforts to track down Dolly Parton to get a script in front of her. Well, this time around, Dolly is sort of the subject once again with a wonderful documentary called Still Working 9 to 5 that looks at the long-running cultural and entertainment impact of that film that starred Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and Lily Tomlin. Here's our conversation with Gary and Larry Lane on Downtown. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Hey, Rich, absolutely. Thank you for having us. We're glad to be here. Well, I watched the movie last night, and, and man, it was just fantastic. And I, I, mean, I love the original Nine to Five, and, and I knew the impact a little bit, but but no idea either at uh, the the roots, the genesis for the story, and then the impact that it's continued to have over the decades. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. You know, we we dived into this four years ago, and you know, never knowing that we would actually interview all of the originals, Dolly and Jane and Lily and Dabney Coleman. And then, you know, this is an archival documentary, so we dug up over a thousand, you know, clips and, you know, photographs. And so I think the fans are really going to enjoy it. But we also focus on a lot of the women's issues that the movie tried to highlight behind the laughter that are still being fought for today, which is kind of a really sad commentary on where we are. Well, it was eye-opening to me that uh, the very title of the film, 9 to 5, was based uh, on an organization that had formed to help women in those positions. Absolutely. And I have to give um, Camille Hardman as my producing and directing partner, and then my brother Larry is an executive producer. But uh, we initially, me and my brother, we wanted to kind of look at 9 to 5 and document the life of 9 to 5 because it was a film. It was a TV show. It was a song. It was a musical. It was going to be a sequel. And then through reaching out to Camille, she really did a lot of research and she found out about the 9 to 5 organization and she found out about a lot of the issues that working women are still dealing with. So that's kind of why we say when the fandom met the feminism, it kind of turned into the film that we have today. I thought it was very interesting, too, that uh, Jane Fonda and her producing partner, Bruce Gilbert, uh, had come off two highly successful dramas, China Syndrome and Coming Home, and, and decided that they wanted to tell this story. And, and as Jane points out in the film, that it might only be acceptable 
to some members of the audience as a comedy. How important do you think it was for the success of the film for it to be something that people could laugh together about? Oh, absolutely. And Lily even, you know, in her interview, she tells you that when they were out promoting the film back in 1980, they were they were coached to emphasize it was a comedy. Don't talk about the working women issues, which is it's kind of like the way we kind of did this documentary. We wanted to bring people in with the fandom, with the nine to five, with the reunion of all the cast members. There's even a new nine to five duet that Dolly and Kelly Clarkson have done, especially for the film. But behind that fandom and all the nine to five that everybody loves, we're showing you the issues and the equal rights amendment hasn't passed. And women are still fighting for universal daycare. And, you know, there's the issues that the movie highlight 42 years ago are still there. So we're kind of an entertaining documentary, but we're also an informative documentary. You also point out in the film that the, the studio was not real happy with the idea of Dabney Coleman in that role as, as the boss, Mr. Hearth. They wanted more of a movie star. And uh, Jane Fonda and others pointed out your movie stars are your three women. They are the three leads. And that was something Hollywood wasn't used to. Yeah, that was another groundbreaking issue. Women did not lead films in 1980. So, to have the, the, you know, Bruce Gilbert and Jane and everyone say the women are the stars and they really fought for Dabney because he was a TV actor and they wanted to put like Steve Martin, Richard Dreyfuss, they wanted to put a big name person in that role that would have basically took over the film and they really fought for that not to happen. And you just can't imagine Dabney Coleman not being in that role. And we, you know, we interviewed him at 90 and, uh, you know, he was an amazing interview because he's so sharp. He, He's, you know, he's just an actor that everybody grew up with and loves. And we were so honored to get his interview because he was the last interview of, uh, we interviewed him February 22nd of 2020. And after his interview, five days later, the whole world shut down. So him being our last interview and we'd already got the three ladies, we were able to edit all through the, the lockdown and get this film ready to get out to the audiences. Well, and it makes such a difference having him there. And the story also is fascinating, too, in the selection of a writer uh, for the screenplay. Getting Colin Higgins, previously known for Harold and Maude, how important was that to the production's success? Absolutely. And the way that started was uh, Lily Tomlin, Patricia Resnick, had written jokes for Lily, and she'd written for Dolly on a special. So they brought Patricia Resnick in, and she wrote a script, but it was a very dark comedy. and you know, so it didn't really fit with what they were trying to do with the comedy and trying to sell it in that way. So they did bring on Colin Higgins and, you know, he did such an amazing job with the script and he brought in the fantasy sequence so that could work in the feminist agenda and the nine to five organizations agenda. And then Patricia stayed in the nine to five family because her and Dolly, you know, years later, they both came together and she wrote the book for nine to five, the musical and Dolly wrote the score. Now, I was surprised to learn that Lily Tomlin was not sure about this at all. She had to be prodded to make the film and then was ready to walk after the first day of shooting. Yeah, Lily is, uh, she, I'll just tell you, um, Dolly was a great interview. Jane was, you know, a little bit more serious. She's more on the issues, which is great. But Lily, we just laughed all the way through her whole interview. She just <laughs> keeps you laughing the whole time. But she did tell us uh, that she watched herself in the dailies where she had to pretend like the little cartoon animals were there and they were not there. And she thought she looked stupid, so she wanted to go out of the picture. And she tells a whole story about going to Bruce Gilbert and saying, Bruce, please let me out of the picture. You don't have to pay me. Um, but she did say that she doesn't watch dailies to this day. She does not like to watch herself on camera. 
what she's filmed. She just lets it air. And uh, so I thought that was really interesting. She's just such a confident comedian. You wouldn't think she had a lot of anxiety about the part back then, but she did. And we didn't, me and my brother are diehard nine to five fans. So we learned so much in her interview that we never knew. And we're talking with Gary Lane here on Downtown. I love the story that's uh, told in the film about writing the song that uh, Dolly said that was part of the deal. She wanted to be able to write the song. And then uh, I think it was the, uh, the sound man for the film that got to hear it first and was just blown away and said, yeah, that has to be in the movie. Yeah, that was Nicholas. He was one of the first people to ever hear it. And then, you know, there's a, just a fun thing because Dolly's just, you know, she's such a smart businesswoman. She told Jane, I'll be in the film and I'll let you, you know, use my name in the film. But then I get to do what I do and I get to write that theme song. And so she did. And that theme song is, you know, it's known around the world. And that's why it was so great when um, we have two other executive producers, Steve Summers, who's Dolly's creative manager, and Shane McAnally, who's just known in the world of music. Mm. He's won Grammys. And so we were having a, a producer's meeting and Steve said to Shane, Shane, will you try to do something different with nine to five? Just see if you can make it any, any different. And so then three months later, we got, you know, there was a, a demo uh, girl who was singing the song and it was just completely reimagined. And so they played that to Dolly and then Do we were told Dolly squealed because she absolutely loved it. And then three days later, we got a call that Dolly had decided she wanted to make it a duet. She knew exactly what she was going to do in the song. And then later, you know, Kelly Clarkson came on. So now we have this new slow and haunting nine to five song that really fits with where we are with the message of nine to five today. So it's not that bubbly, upbeat nine to five optimistic that everybody knows. It's a it's a completely remake on the song. And I think it fits along well with the documentary and the issues that are still there for working women. It is a wonderful version of the song, absolutely. And that's part of the story of the film, Still Working 9 to 5, the battle for equal rights for women. And back when the film came out in 1980, things were so close within a couple of states of getting passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. And here we are all these years later, and we're still short of that goal. Did, did the film change some minds from your perspective? Well, the 1980 film, it, it definitely, because a lot of women, you know, a lot of women back then, they didn't want to be labeled a feminist, mm. but they did want equal pay. They wanted equal job advancements. They wanted to, you know, combat sex harassment. So they did start a movement with, especially with the Equal Rights Amendment, because that was in 1982. But one thing uh, a lot of people have told us that have seen the film, they love the way we lay the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment out. They love the way we explain what the Equal Rights Amendment is and also that the Equal Rights Amendment was struck down in 1982, and it still has not passed. So even, you know, a, a lot of the women that have seen the film, even Dolly herself said that she did not know that it had not passed. So we're hoping that we educate a lot of people on the Equal Rights Amendment and why it needs to pass. And I, we've said to ourselves, if our film out of this documentary, if it raises enough buzz and starts enough conversations, the Equal Rights Amendment were to pass, and possibly that nine to five sequel that fans have been wanting forever gets made, then we will feel like we've accomplished something. They even announced yesterday, Netflix, that uh, they're going to air the final episodes of Grace and Frankie on April 29th, and Dolly is featured in those episodes. So that was just a huge buzz. There's just the love for Dolly and Lily and Jane and just the camaraderie they created in that film, and it still resonates today, and you can see it in our film as well. Now, there was the spinoff, the television series that uh, was short-lived, and as you point out in the film, 
uh, even with some great talent like the wonderful Rita Moreno, uh, it, it strayed a bit from the message of the nine to five organization to the point where Jane Fonda and Bruce Gilbert asked that their names be removed from it. Yeah, unfortunately, that there was a it was the demise of the TV series because a lot of the executives wanted to weigh in, and you know it was not written well like the way Colin Higgins had written the film. So. You know, unfortunately, it was a part of the history that that did not make a lot of movement there because you would find yourself, you know, rooting for the balls over the secretaries. And we kind of go into that just a little bit. You know, we kind of have to follow the timelines of the nine to five stepping stones as they played out in history. And we intersect them with the nine to five uh, with the women's issues, the working women. So we have a lot of intersections through both of those uh, timelines that lead us up to present day and where we are with so many women having to drop out, you know, of the workforce to take care of kids during the pandemic. And, you know, we're, we're kind of editing this thing in, in real time. We've been editing right along with history in the making. And they're even uh, in Congress, they, uh, there's proposals to strike down the Equal Rights Amendment, the deadline uh, that is unconstitutional because Virginia did become the 38th mm-hmm. state to ratify in uh, January 20th of 2020, which is what we've always needed, 38 states to pass it into law, but there's a deadline there that's still holding it from going into law. Uh, The show moved to Broadway in in the early 2000s, and uh, that's an amazing story. I think it's the part of the film that that took me most by surprise. I think I I uttered an audible gasp when Harvey Weinstein showed up on screen, and, and you explained that he was one of the investors in the Broadway show. How ironic. Yeah, I an investor and producer of the 9 to 5 show on Broadway in 2009, which was, you know, several years before, you know, Me Too and, and his, his court case. So it was just it was jaw dropping for us when we actually found that. And we made the decision as filmmakers to leave it in there because it was a part of that, you know, hidden culture back then that was covering up a lot of the. We left it in there. I will say the South by Southwest every time we watched it. The audience's gas, you know, there were some boos, but we put the history up there. And then it kind of shows you that in 2019, when they took it to the West End, the musical, uh, after Me Too, Harvey Weinstein, all of that had happened, it was received in a completely different way. Mm. Uh, there was more of a strong message behind the, the musical at that time. And that's why it's still a success. It's even in Australia, it just opened. And Dolly just announced about a week ago that they're going to bring it back to the U.S. in the fall of this year for a, a, a traveling tour around the United States. So I think we may have had something to do with that. And because it keeps the message of nine to five and working women still, you know, in the mainstream. Absolutely. We have a a regional professional theater uh, right here in town that will be presenting it uh, later on this year. It still rings as true as ever, but with, I think, a different meaning than it had when the film first came out all those years ago. But you tell the story so wonderfully in this new documentary. It's called Still Working, Nine to Five. Uh, You you have to see it when you get the chance. Uh, We thank you for being with us today, and congratulations to you and and Larry and Camille and everyone involved in the effort. Uh, It really is a wonderful film that that tells the story of a, a special movie, but also uh, the movement that inspired it and has, uh, has uh, continued to grow along with the popularity of that story. Thank you so much. Rich. Thank you for your time. And everybody can keep following the journey. And hopefully we'll be able to announce some streaming information and more info for the film so more eyes can get on it. That sounds great. Well, Gary and Larry, thank you so much for being with us. We wish you much success with Still Working 9 to 5. Thank you, Thank Rich. You. Bye-bye. The Lane Twins talking about their new documentary, Still Working 9 to 5.
We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, Don Daneman of The Circle on Danton. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security Security meets strength. recognize that sound the circle with vocalists don daneman and tommy dawes that's a brand new song that don has written and recorded with his late partner tom dawes and don joined us to uh, tell us the story of how we thought we could fly came to be somewhere in the latter part of last year 2021 a gentleman named daniel coston a photographer who is a very good friend of the band. And we're, we're very close to him. We're, we deal with stuff all the time. Out of the blue, he sent me a song. And he, he said, Don, I want to send you this. Just listen to it. Okay, listen to it. It was a song that uh, it was pleasant. It felt like there was a 60s feel to it. It felt like there was some Beatles uh, influence, some Beach Boy influence. And okay, fine. Uh, I email him back. Okay, why did you send me this song? What what am I supposed to be hearing? And then he he then comes clean and shares with me. This was a song that was recorded by a gentleman named Andrew Sandoval in 2002, who was good friend with bandmate Tommy Dawes. And Tommy is singing all the background vocals in this song. And I went, oh my God, now I'm listening to it again. And of course, now that I know it's Tommy and I listen to the background vocals and I go, wow, I, of course it's Tommy. I recognize him totally. Um, And now a light goes off in my head. If you remember the Beatles song, Free as a Bird, Mm. we all remember, of course. All right, well, that song, was done from a demo that John Lennon had done. Uh, Now, we know John Lennon passed, I think it was 1980, and this was mid-90s that they did this. Anyway, they took this demo, used John, and then enhanced it and made uh, made a new song out of it, and it was a big hit. I had thought after my bandmate Tommy died, I had thought to do a song like that, if I could ever get a vocal of his that I could do something with. So all of a sudden, I'm hearing these background vocals and I go, oh, wow. Daniel, can you contact Andrew and ask him if I could get those tracks? And I told him exactly what I wanted to do. Now, I didn't know exactly how it would turn out. I just had the basic thought in my mind to do it. 
Andrew Sandoval was wonderful. And he said, absolutely, take it, do whatever you want with it. Go ahead and, and do it. So he sent me the, the, the tracks of that whole recording and I was able to pull off Tommy's vocals, the whole, all the thing. All right, so now I had them. Now, I didn't want to do the song, Andrew's song. I wanted to actually write something that honored Tommy and I, honored that friendship, honored the circle chain of events, you know, the career that we had. And um, and so I didn't know how it was going to go. So I basically had to take those vocals and work with them. Like, okay, take this section, put it here. Take that section, put it there. Take another section, put it here. And before I even wrote anything, I just put them in a, in a way that I said, I think I can make a song out of this now. It and, was you, and you only had, what, one one actual word that Tommy sang, right? Yes. The whole thing was oohs. It was a background vocal, but the one word that he did sing was fly. So that gave me something to go on. So I said, okay, where are we going to go with the word fly? Um, and uh, we ended up with, we thought we could fly. And basically the song, uh, goes as follows. I mean, I tried to make kind of a history of he and I and honor that. All right. So the song, it, it starts out 1961, Lafayette College. Now, of course, I'm going to give you more details than I can put in the song, but this is the gist of it. In 1961 at Lafayette College, freshman year for both of us, at a freshman mixer, the band that was hired, that was playing took a break and a couple of guys went in and picked up instruments and started playing during the band break. A couple of fellow freshmen, a friend of mine that I was hanging with listened. Hey, we're looking at this is Don. You got to go play with them. You know, you can play too. So love my amp down the stairs, which is part of the lyric of the song. Actually, I love my amp down the stairs. And I asked if I can uh, play with them and, yeah, come on, play. So we started playing, and it was magic. I mean, we knew the same songs of the time, Buddy Holly, Everly Brothers, um, all the doo-wop stuff. Uh, and we started playing, and it was just, it was, it sounded really good. You know, like we looked at each other, wow, we should start a band. And that was the birth and, of the Rondells, right? Exactly. That was the birth of the Rondells at Lafayette College that eventually became the circle. So, wow, okay, so the uh, the next part of the song now takes us up to the part where, once again, I'm gonna give you details, it's not all in the song, but it, it, the, the gist is there. We, um, we really got good at Beatles, Beach Boy, good, the, the, the good harmony songs of, of, the, of that era. Uh, in 1964, at Spring Interfraternity Weekend, we were the rock band because we became the band on campus. We got to, we, the Rondells was the band to get for your fraternity party. We were the band. So we were the rock band at this big ball that had the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra as the big band and us, the rock band. And we announced we are going to do a Beatles show during one of our sets. And everybody knew us, of course. So that was a big deal. 
like, and we bought long-haired wigs. We all had <laughs> short hair. <laughs> so we got long-haired wigs, and we did a Beatles show. And that show was as good for us in terms of a, a big up feeling that entertainers get when you just hit a home run. And to us, it was a home run that was probably even equal to playing with the Beatles and having a hit record as the circle. It was just mind-blowingly awesome. Anyway, um, Warren Covington, who was leading the Tommy Dorsey, Dorsey Orchestra, um, he was really impressed. And he, he thought, you know, maybe um, we could uh, combine your band and my orchestra, and you could step out and do this rock stuff. And uh, he invited us to Atlantic City, where we tried it. Now, that didn't work, because it was just not our kind of music to do this, you know, legit orchestra stuff. But there we were in Atlantic City, and Tom and Marty and I uh, thought, you know what, why don't we see if we can get a job for the summer? This was spring in Atlantic City. Let's go around and see if we can get a job. Earl, uh, original keyboard player, he was uh, off in uh, as an intern for med school, and he wasn't going to leave that. Tom, Marty, and I got a job at the Alibi Bar in Atlantic City on South Carolina Avenue off the boardwalk. I have no idea if it's still there or not. I doubt it. But um, And we played for that summer, and we also played the following summer, which is um, the summer of 65, and Earl was with us at that point. Um, uh, and at the very end of the summer, in walks a gentleman named Matt Weiss, who hears us and introduces himself. I'm Nat Weiss, uh, and I'm partners with Beatle manager Brian Epstein, which we thought, eh, you gotta be kidding. You're, you're lying. But he said that, you know. And he uh, he said, um, come, you know, come and, uh, you know, give me a call and maybe we can get something going. So now I can get into a lot of details of how that went, but as far as the song goes, the point is that 64 show got us to Atlantic City, got us to meet Matt, got us to meet Brian, got us the management contract with Brian and Matt, got us to play with the Beatles, this whole thing, you know, so the, so we thought we could fly and we did, <laughs> you know, we really flew for a little while, but then we went our separate ways, you know, and that's a, a part of the song. Now, before the end, um, there is, I'll call it the instrumental, but it's actually an acapella vocal. And, and by the and, way, it's for my money, it, it's the best part of the song. Those incredible harmonies and, and the falsettos are just, oh, it's beautiful. Well, I was thrilled to have access to that because um, much of that vocal is Tommy. And that's actually what he did on that song that I got. But I was able to enhance it in a way that I was so thrilled to do. I thought, how cool is this? I took the organ part that everybody knows of Red Rubber Ball. And in falsetto, along with what Tommy did, I sang the Red Rubber Ball organ. And so 
you know, it, it just was thrilling to me to tie that whole thing together. Oh, All right. So now we, it's a great callback. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Now I'm, I think most people hearing it, even people who are familiar with the circle, maybe wouldn't even recognize that unless I told them. So I'm telling you, <laughs> there it is. When you hear the song, make note of that. Anyway, last verse of the song, um, Tommy and I actually were talking about forming a band again. You know, we are now both retired. This is 2007, and that's the lyric says, bunch of old guys, 2007. <laughs> we're going to form a band. He and his wife were about to drive out to Pennsylvania from New York, where my wife, Deb, and I were, were living, and we're going to spend a weekend and talk about re redoing a band. Let's start a band. And um, I get a call that evening. Hey, Don, my uh, doctor wants me to have carotid artery surgery, but he didn't want me to wait, you know, so I'm going into the hospital tonight. It's a simple operation. It, you know, it's maybe a 45 minute operation, but I'll be out for the weekend. So we'll come out next weekend. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Well, be well, take care. And he dies on the operating table that night. Well, I can't tell you, I mean, if you, a sudden unexpected death of someone that you really care about was, it was devastating. And I remember I was on the phone with original keyboard, Rondell keyboard player, Earl Pickens, who is actually a retired surgeon now in Gainesville, Florida. And um, we basically cried all night on the phone. We just, I mean, how could this happen? So anyway, that is the, that's the song. That's where it came from. And I found myself tearing up as I wrote it. You know, it was such an emotional thing and having, um, so what I did is I did a bunch of takes of video takes, so, you know, lip syncing the song, which our wonderful uh, video editor was able to mix and match and, and do. And then we got a whole bunch of old pictures and, and we put them in and my instructions were to him, I want you to put take individual shots of Tommy. Now we can do other stuff too, but, but for instance, the first thing that I sing is the word fly, which is the one thing that Tommy, <laughs> that Tommy actually sang. So he sang, I got it by himself, but I got it as a group. And we, and when you listen to the thing, you will, you hear that. Um, so I wanted, so whenever we sing that, that single fly, that is basically red rubber ball harmony. Even though now the song sounds nothing like Red Rubber Ball, and it wasn't supposed to, but that those two parts—that's Tommy and I. Oh, and it's got and, that great circle sound to it. Exactly, and I—I I was so thrilled to be able to do that. So here we go, fly with that original. Those are the two parts of Red Rubber Ball. You know, I start out by myself. He joins me, and there's that circle sound. So able to do that, and then his oohs were really nice. You know. <laughs> melodic ooze, and I made sure to mix them up where you could hear them. Um, uh, and then on the chorus, a chorus part, it's like, we thought we could fly. Well, there I was able to get a group harmony thing with him, you know, <laughs> singing that. So 
to be able to one last time sing with Tommy was, I mean, I, I get emotional talking about it now. It's just, it was just a, a very special thing for me. And I just wanted to share it with people. When you're in the studio uh, putting everything together and you hear that sound come through the speakers or the headphones for the first time, you, you must have just flashed back 50 plus years and thought, oh my God, we're together again. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I have so many memories of Tommy and, and his music and the way he approached it and what we did together, you know, and even on the videos, you know, when I look at, at um, the pictures of us together and a, a couple, there's a few videos of us together, like from, from Hullabaloo and Hollywood Palace, those videos. And you, you can even see when we look at, uh, you know, now we're on national television doing this and we look at each other and smile, you know, kind of laugh. And when you see those videos, I go, oh my God. Yeah, we really, we really loved each other. It was a very special relationship. It, it's amazing, too, to me that you both, uh, even when the circle broke up, you both went into, among other things, uh, writing and recording commercial jingles, both of you, with great success. We did. It was a very, I was very tickled, I don't know, to, to have been able to get into that, because when um, many people maybe know this or not, but rock, most rock groups, even with a hit or two, don't make a lot of money. And I will be candidly tell you, the circle never made a lot of money as the circle. And so here we are. Now, I came from a background of like business. My dad had a sheet metal business. You know, there was a, that concept of like, you have to earn money, you got to earn a living, da, 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 da. And I was really torn as the circle was breaking up where to go. And once again, I'm going to give Tommy credit. He, uh, he got the commercial thing going. He, he formed his own commercial production company. And I watched him do that. And I thought, you know, I think this maybe is a way where you can be legitimately in business and in music, because I really did love my music. I didn't want to leave it and actually make a living. And both of us did. So it was a, it was a very, it was an interesting transition but it enabled us to stay in music. And then when we were actually talking about getting back together again before he passed, we both still had a very intense music background that we could, I, I can't imagine where it might've gone, but because we both have continued that music experience. We're talking with Don Daneman here on Downtown. Last time you were on with us, you told the wonderful story about uh, the meeting with Brian Epstein and uh, him presenting you with the name of the band that John Lennon had come up with and then the unusual spelling. And we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, you out there touring with them and you guys uh, playing for that absolutely final concert that the Beatles gave. Nobody knew at the time at Candlestick Park that would be it. But but I understand that, that George Harrison at least uh, dropped some hints that this might be it. Yeah, he did. He did. You know, he was kind of walking around with a camera and he was taking pictures. And, you know, we asked him, you know, like, well, you're taking, I mean, are there enough press pictures here? You know, like, he says, well, you know, this may be, this will, we don't know how much we're going to play anymore. Could this be the last Maybe this is the last time we play. And I just want to have some personal memories of this. And 
well, okay, you know, th that was great. You know, the, the biggest regret I have of having met them and been able to talk to them and a little bit of hang out is that on the last plane ride from, I think it was from San Francisco to LA, where the whole tour was still together for the last time, but this is after Candlestick Park, everybody was taking pictures with the Beatles and they were really nice. They would pose, you know, I mean, it was very loose. The plane was just open and loose and they were all around and taking pictures. And for some really stupid reason, we didn't want to be looked at by them as, oh, we're just silly fans of the Beatles, you know? <laughs> so we didn't take the pictures. And so there, uh, unless somebody has one, and if any of your listeners have a picture of any of us with, with an actual Beatle, <laughs> please send it to me. <laughs> I love it. The only picture that I have ever seen that um, where you, I'm sort of with a Beatle is, I, I think it may have been in LA, but I'm not sure what uh, what stadium it was, but it's it's back on from the field looking at the stage. And here I am leaning against the stage, looking toward the camera. And it wasn't a picture of me, it was just a general picture. And George is walking kind of right in front as in he's about to take the stage, Wow, <laughs> you know? So there's, but it's not a thing. I mean, in all candor, it's not me and George. It's a picture of me with a picture of George, but I'm in it right back there, <laughs> up there a little bit. And that is the only picture that I'm aware of, of any of us with it, where there's another Beatle in there. Now there are pictures of us on stage and you certainly can see the Beatle drums and that kind of thing, you know, but like I said, I'm going to repeat, if anybody out there has a picture of any of us with any of them, send it. <laughs> How ironic, too, that it was the Beatles paperback writer that kept Red Rubber Ball out of the number one spot. Yes, it was. And that was um, uh, it, it when we do our show. Um, now, we have two hits. Obviously, we have Red Rubber Ball and Turn Down Day. Now, that's our main reason for being there. If you're a 60s artist and you do a show, people want to hear your hits. Okay, we have two hits. Um, now, what do you do in between? And we have tried to link every song that we do in between with something relevant. And we do Paperback Writer. And when I when we do it, I announce, ladies and gentlemen, you all know how Red Rubber Ball was such a big, huge hit, um, meant a lot to a lot of people, but I, I just, I'm sad to share with you, Red Rubber Ball only made number two. And, you know, but at least it was our friends, Here, here's what was number one, and we go, paperback, we bang right into it. And it gets a big, nice reaction. I love it. Well, uh, the, the new song is it's so wonderful. It's great to hear you and Tommy together again. It's up on YouTube. We thought we could fly. And it's, it's great. It's great to hear that sound and you two together again. And uh, great to hear the story of not just not just the band, but a great friendship as well. It was. It was very special. And uh, I'm thrilled to share it. Thank you for allowing me to share it. Don, thank you so much. I was so glad to, to get your email and to hear the song, and it's great to have the chance to talk with you again. 
Well, and once again, thank you for responding, and I'm honored to be able to share. Bye. Well, what a great story and a terrific song from The Circle. Don Daneman, Tommy Dawes, and We Thought We Could Fly. Our thanks to Don for joining us this week on the podcast, and thanks to the Lane Twins, Gary and Larry as well. Check out their film, Still Working, 9 to 5. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And we'll see you next time right here on Downtown.